All right, folks, welcome back to another edition of John Solomon Reports. As before, I'm your guest host, Daniel Payne, your reporter with Just the News. I almost said special guest host. I don't know if I'm that special, but in any event, I'm filling in for my editor-in-chief, John Solomon, this week, and I'm happy to be here, and I'm glad you're joining us as well. As ever, there's plenty of news to cover today, and of course, you can get great coverage of all the most important events of the week at Just the News, justthenews.com. We invite you to take a look there. It's December, and of course, the Christmas decorations are coming out. Uh, now, in some cases, they've been out since before Thanksgiving or even since around Halloween, and I have a lot to say about that, but we'll save that for another time. In any case, this would normally be about the time of year that kids would be looking forward to coming home from school for a few weeks, slowing down, taking it easy. Uh, but of course, in many cases, if not most cases throughout the country, children are already home. Uh, and they've been home from school for weeks, if not months, uh, if not since the early spring of this year. Uh, public officials, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, have many times throughout the course of the COVID-19 pandemic in the U.S. shut down elementary schools and middle schools and high schools, in many cases statewide, in the hopes that doing so will help reduce the number of positive COVID-19 tests. Now, in most cases, students have been switched to remote learning, uh, and that's really amounted to a, a hastily assembled form of online education using Zoom. Of course, I'm sure everybody's very familiar with Zoom at this point, the, the online uh, video service. Uh, that's what students have been uh, attending uh, over the last uh, several months. And various forms of that system have been put in place throughout the United States since around March or April in you know school districts and, and counties and cities. Um, and in addition to that, in, in, in many cases, students have been also prevented from seeing any of their friends or classmates overall this time. That's the point, of course. Students were originally pulled out of school in order to keep them apart from other students and lessen the risk that COVID-19 might spread among them. Uh, where students and children have been permitted to socialize, in a lot of cases they've had to do so socially distanced, uh, quote-unquote, and with masks on, as has become the norm throughout most of our society. That appears to be overwhelmingly the case in schools that have reopened as well, I might add. Uh, in some cases, for instance, schools have dictated that students are not allowed to talk to each other during lunch. Uh, they have to have silent lunches where they sit and eat silently uh, to reduce the risk of potentially spreading the coronavirus. So that's what's been going on for, for most of the year so far. And, and, and after nine months of these, these types of policies, how is it working out? How are children handling it? What are they experiencing both pedagogically and psychologically uh, from this way of living that less than a year ago might have seemed like a, a strange science fiction movie? Now, we're going to have some experts on in a little bit to share some professional insight into how children have fared during this pandemic. Uh, but before that, I, I'd like to share with you some preliminary evidence as to how things are going. Now, we've been covering this issue at Just the News for months. It's an important issue. Children, as the saying goes, are the future, and, and what happens to them today, how they're raised, how they're educated, and how their minds are formed, has an obvious and inarguable effect on the future of this country and, and of the world. So we've been very interested in reporting how students have been handling this pandemic and the policies that have directly affected them in particular. Well, last week we reported on an internal report out of Fairfax County Public Schools in Northern Virginia, and that's a, a, a major school district in Virginia, it's very large, and that report showed that overall students receiving F grades, uh, uh, that number has increased 83% this quarter compared to the same quarter of last year, so 83% more F grades 
this past quarter than in the same quarter of the prior school year. 83% is a big jump, uh, but the spike was even more pronounced specifically among middle schoolers. That age demographic saw a 300% increase in Fs, 300%. That's big, that's very big. It's certainly not normal. Uh, the school district uh, told us those numbers are related to the difficulties uh, in part students have experienced in adjusting to remote learning, which of course uh, uh, seems uh, obvious that that would, uh, that would be a, a difficult adjustment for a lot of kids and that their grades would suffer. Uh, the, the, the level to which uh, failing grades have risen this year uh, I, I think was probably unprecedented by everybody, but uh, uh, a certain spike probably was not unanticipated, still very high. Um, now you can see increases in, in failing grades in uh, other preliminary data and reports from across the country. Uh, my off-the-cuff guess is that once everything is assessed, uh, after all this is over and, and things have hopefully returned to some semblance of normal, uh, you're going to see what were failing spikes across the country and across the spectrum of student levels. I, I, I don't think this is going to be an isolated uh, uh, incidence of, of uh, failing grades. I think that's going to be unfortunately fairly common. Uh, distance learning, it, it would seem, is turning out to be much more easily said than done. Uh, there was uh, a pr pretty uh, a big confidence that the in the spring and maybe the start of the school year that uh, that this transition could be made with with some minimal difficulty. Obviously, there are always going to be difficulties inherent in that sort of thing, but uh, I think there was a confidence that that it could be pulled off in a way that uh, that you wouldn't see uh, huge educational losses and. The early evidence indicates that it, it, it looks to be a lot harder than, uh, than it was originally thought. So uh, we're going to have to be watching closely uh, uh, how these numbers stack up in the months ahead. We're also seeing, in addition to the, the educational effects, we're also seeing uh, early indicators of the psychological impact of forced distancing, separation from friends, separation from routine, all factors that have, uh, that have played into uh, uh, closing the schools. Now, New York Magazine last week had an excellent report on what they called the children of quarantine. Uh, and there have been reports of children uh, being more stressed, more anxious. In some cases, they're regressing. They're reverting to baby talk. Uh, they're wetting the bed again. Uh, and last month, the New York Times as well did an excellent report on the mental health effects lockdowns are having on kids. Uh, mental health emergency room visits are reportedly up. Uh, one child in the course of that article said that school closures mean that there is nothing to look forward to day after day. That's, that was the exact quote, nothing to look forward to. One student said, when I can't see my friends, I feel like the world's caving in, uh, which is just a, an incredibly heavy and, and, and weighty thing for a young person to say, a child to say. And, and that appears to be what, uh, what's occurring uh, uh, across the board in, in, in uh, many cities around the country. Um, you know, that, that evidence has been piling up actually for a while. Uh, it, it's just getting attention uh, in the last few weeks, it seems like there's been a, an increased amount of attention uh, paid to, to the effects that uh, children are experiencing from these closures. But it, it's been there. Uh, it's definitely uh, 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 not been much of a secret over the course of uh, the last nine or ten months. Uh, what's odd is that, um, you know, government officials are... are still insisting that school closures are, are uh, apparently a pretty uh, viable option for, for a response to the pandemic. Now, you know, early in the pandemic, you, it might have been excusable insofar as uh, we didn't really know how this virus was going to play out. It was new. It was uh, 
you know, uh, we weren't sure of its mechanics, how it would spread among children. But we have pretty good data at this point uh, to indicate that uh, younger individuals, particularly elementary and middle school age children, are at very low risk of spreading the disease or going sick from it. Now, we, we've been reporting on this for months at Just the News. We've, uh, we've covered uh, uh, significant updates on, on the, the data and investigations into how how children spread and contract and, and uh, uh, sort of deal with this virus if they do contract it. Um, the CDC director, uh, director of the Centers for Disease Control, Robert Redfield, he said over the summer that a child's risk of dying from COVID-19 is literally, he said, one in a million. Those were, those were his words. Uh, schools in Europe, you, you may be aware, have largely remained open throughout the recent surge of positive test results there, uh, with apparently little effect on the pandemic. Doesn't appear that uh, that leaving those schools open uh, greatly increase the transmission rate or the incidence of positive test results. Um, all, all signs point to schools being all in all safe environments for students during this pandemic, uh, that they're places that are probably unlikely to contribute to outbreaks of COVID-19. So how we, how we got here where, where there are, are still so many schools closed and so many students uh, uh, reaping the, the genuinely negative uh, uh, effects of that. At this point, it feels to be a bit of a mystery as to, as to how we ended up here. Uh, but the effects that these policies are having on children seem to be plainer and plainer by the day. And we're going to have, like I said, a couple of experts coming up next that will offer some more critical insight into what's happening with kids across the country, both psychologically and educationally, in the midst of all these closures and stay-at-home orders. I hope you'll stay tuned to hear them. Thanks for listening. Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So, you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friends who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group, text Just News to 989898 right now. We're back uh, with John Solomon Reports. This is your host, Daniel Payne, and I am joined here today by Dr. Michelle Critella. She's a pediatrician and she is the executive director of the American College of Pediatricians. Dr. Critella, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah, we're glad to have you. Yeah, so so we were uh, uh, talking earlier about um, uh, the effects that um, that the pandemic, and in particular that uh, pandemic policies, have had on children. Uh, and there's been some uh, preliminary and some more thorough studies on both the academic and psychological effects that that the, those policies have been having over the past nine months. Now, um, you're a pediatrician, so you know we, we obviously speak 
highly of, uh, of, of frontline workers uh, in hospitals and doctor's offices kind of taking uh, COVID head on. But you, you are, in another sense, a, a frontline worker in that uh, uh, you're, you're right on the front line of, of uh, how kids are responding to this uh, pandemic and, and the policies that we've undertaken to mitigate it. So uh, are, you, are you seeing um, uh, the psychological effects that, uh, that have uh, been cropping up in children? Uh, have you observed a, a, a big increase in those? And um, w what are those effects uh, that you've seen over the past several months? So I would say that we've had um, feedback from pediatricians and also psych psychologists and psychiatrists from around the country um, that, unfortunately, there's no doubt that um, more and more children are presenting with symptoms, signs and symptoms of depression, uh, anxiety, um, especially among our teens, right? I mean, this is a critical stage of development, and they, they need that socialization. They're interacting with their peers. Um, and with the lockdowns and school closures, um, the isolation has been very crippling to this um, age group in, in general. Um, we also, um, you know, unfortunately, around the suicide around the world is the second leading cause of death for young people. Um, so it is very uh, deeply concerning that... Uh, the social isolation, you know, has been hitting the kids uh, the hardest. Yeah, and so, uh, you know, it, it can be it can be difficult uh, uh, for adults to to go from a pretty active social life to uh, to you know one in which we're inside for much of the time, maybe just interacting with social media or Netflix. But do you do you think that's uh, harder or or easier for kids to cope with? Um, I would say that it's. It, it's far more difficult be, uh, for the children again because they're at that early stage of development. They're, this is their their time when, um, especially as teens, that they are forming critical relationships with their peers, and um, they're just from their cognitive development as as well, and um, the wiring of their brains. That face to face interactions are actually required. Um, just looking at uh, development of, of um, traits such as compassion. Um, so I would um, even something, so being online is not the same as being in person. And um, we're also seeing that with online classes, for example, um, a lot of kids, and particularly those who are already in the most vulnerable um, categories, maybe they're struggling with poverty, for example, already, um, they are not engaged. They may, if, you, if they're even signing into classes, then they're turning their cameras off and maybe going back to bed or, um, you know, retreating to uh, drugs or, or other um, unhealthy coping mechanisms. Uh, so it just kind of spirals. Right. Now you know one of the one of the things that that's kind of been uh, uh, repeated a lot by uh, by a lot of people, particularly the people uh, kind of making these decisions to to uh, close schools or, or shut them down, is that um, you know kids are resilient, which I think we all we all know that's usually the case that uh, 
kids can absorb a lot more than we give them credit for and, and can, can cope with uh, stuff on a higher level than we, we sometimes think. But, uh, you know, this seems to be a, kind of a horse of a different color as far as um as what we're we're asking kids to to absorb and process uh do you think and i think you alluded to this already depending on how long this goes do you think that that the the effects that we're seeing if there's uh you know more depression if there's um uh you know potentially uh, uh disruptions in development uh do you think these effects will be long lasting or do you think that that they're more temporary and that uh that you know, if and when things finally return to normal, uh, these kids could make up uh, a lot of the ground that they may have lost over the past year? Um, you know, there is definitely um, evidence or cause for, for concern that these can be um, long-acting consequences. Um, even uh, there's some evidence coming out that came out of uh, China that even the preschool kids with even just six months of masking around each other, they showed signs of depression and lack of socialization and anxiety. And you're looking at three, four, three and four-year-old kids and, and, you know, these people are saying, oh, well, they've got their whole lives ahead of them. They can recoup. They can recoup. No, no. Those early years, you don't get that time back in that, in that development. Those are, those are critical. Um, you cannot say that, uh, it, that's a traumatic experience for them, and that those traumatic experiences, psychologically speaking, get um, imprinted in their minds, and will they will carry that forward with them as they go on. Um, I, I think we we need to, and and this is what pediatricians around the world have uh, have agreed on, without minimizing the uh, COVID nineteen and the virus itself, children. Um, children are, they have very, very low morbidity and almost, you know, zero mortality. It's not a, a threat to them. And children, school kids are not super spreaders. Schools are, are not um, the cause of super spreading events. And so we really need to put what is best for kids first and, and get them back to school in person um, as much as possible because our psychological health is as important as physical health. Right. You know, and, and that's, that kind of leads into my next question, uh, which is that, you know, and obviously, uh, as, as is often repeated, there's, there's uh, still, you know, plenty we, we might not know about this virus or, or how it spreads or how it works or, uh, you know, uh, what what its ultimate effect on on the whole population will be, but um, you know, as as a as a medical professional and a pediatrician, you you mentioned that um, you know kids should be back in in school uh, uh, with each other and, and having face to face interaction, and um, and I understand this is you know certainly a fraught topic, but do, do you think that that uh, the reintroduction of of you know face to face in person education and interaction uh, for children should be accompanied by uh, you know, uh, socially distanced policies or, or masking policies? Or do you think that, that children are at uh, uh, enough of a low risk that, that even that is, uh, is too risky for their development? What, uh, what, are you, what are you seeing so far in the pandemic? So I think um, one comparison that was very instructive um, occurred between um, Sweden and Finland. 
Finland had shut down schools, locked full lockdowns. They had the social distance, the masking, um, and as compared to Sweden, which kept their schools open, they did not have social distancing or, or masking. The results, when they looked at what happened to um, the kids and teachers in those countries, um, there was no difference. Um, so very reassuring that, um, again, we know that kids do get infected. Obviously, they get infected, but they are more likely to spread it to uh, within their uh, within households, um, not to teachers. But when they examined uh, the teachers in Sweden, they found that teachers were no more likely to become infected with COVID-19 as compared to any other profession. So that should be very reassuring um, to all of us. Um, also, with regards to, uh, to math, there was a very recent landmark Danish study that found no significant effects for mask, uh, face mask wearers. Um, so uh, taking... You know, and and it was a randomized controlled uh, trial. It was the highest level of scientific evidence um, that we could have. So taking that study and that information and combining it with the fact that children are not super spreaders, we should be very encouraged and assured um, at making things as normal as possible, especially for um, our youngest kids. Um, uh, you know, under under high school, there really should be no hesitation. Um, in fact, what's interesting, we we should also consider that among these younger kids, forcing them to wear face masks um, uh, can be uh, a hazard. Um, as an example, when when you think about it, when you have cloth face masks, everyone knows these on for long periods of time. Um, they're becoming uh, they. they Trapped moisture. Um, I've had parents say, "Oh my gosh, you know my little my, my my little Johnny here. You know he's got like crumbs from snack time in there." And these are not they're they're not sterilized medical masks that they're walking around with. And um, there was an outbreak in um, a, a school district in Michigan, an outbreak of strep throat among children and staff, and ultimately the their best um, educated guess is that it's related to um, mask wearing because these kids, they'll even trade masks or they'll put them on surfaces and the, uh, you know, the, the, strepto the streptococcal bacteria can adhere to the surfaces and now you're causing infection. So we need to take a step back and look at the big picture and the reality is Children, especially young kids, are not the source driving the COVID-19 um, crisis by any stretch of the imagination. I think this is, you know, one of the most critical uh, issues we have to confront uh, with the with the the pandemic and and our response to it is is what to, what effect it's having on the the generations that are up and coming and will be, uh, you know, going through their critical formative years. So. We know you and plenty of other pediatricians are, are at the forefront trying to make sure that is uh, the response is commensurate to the risk. And um, and Dr. Patella, we really appreciate you coming on and talking to us, and uh, we'd love to have you back on again. So thank you so much. 
Thank you very much. Have a great day. Folks, Field of Greens is the healthiest thing I do every day, and I want you on this journey with me. Why? It's literally one scoop a day. It tastes great. I love the fruit flavors particularly, and it's completely improved my life and my health. This is nutrition the way nature intended. When I began taking a hard look at why I wasn't feeling good and why I felt unhealthy, why I was gaining weight, why I was losing energy, it wasn't just because I had hit my 50s. No, it was because I wasn't getting the right amount of fruit and vegetables in my diet. And listen, it's, I'm just too busy to go to the store, clean up the vegetables, cook a, a vegetable dinners and make sure I hit the fruit. A field of greens stepped in. One scoop of powder in my drink or on my eggs in the morning and boom, I was off and feeling better. And suddenly I was losing weight. I was sleeping better. My metabolism went up. My blood sugar went down. My cholesterol went down and my weight went down. And my doctor said, hey, whatever you're doing, keep it doing. You know what that is? It's Field of Greens. That's what I've been doing. Field of Greens is radically different. Each organic fruit and vegetable was medically chosen to support heart and vital organ health. I trust Field of Greens to keep me healthy. I promise you, you're going to love this product. But if for any reason you don't, they'll give you 100% money back guarantee. Now, you're going to get 15% off your first order plus free rush shipping because of the incredible partnership we have here at Just the News with Brick. House Nutrition, and, of course, Field of Greens. All you got to do to take advantage of this offer, visit fieldofgreens.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's promo code JUSTNEWS at fieldofgreens.com. Don't wait. Go to fieldofgreens.com today. Use the promo code JUSTNEWS for 15% off. All right, folks. Welcome back to John Solomon Reports. I am your host, Daniel Payne, and joining us right now on the phone is Jonathan Butcher. He's a senior policy analyst for the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity. Jonathan, thanks for coming on here. Great to be with you. Well, so we um, we were talking earlier about um, uh, you know obviously uh, one of the big news topics of today is. Um, uh, the uh, school closures that have been uh, kind of ongoing throughout the country uh, since March. Uh, some have opened up, some have stayed closed, some have uh, closed down after opening up. Um, one thing that's, that's becoming clear is that uh, uh, these closures and the kind of the new distance education regime uh, is having some effects on students uh, that, that, that we're starting to see uh, what this past uh, eight or nine months of instruction uh, uh, what what's kind of coming out from it? So can you can you kind of uh, 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 tell our listeners what, what what kinds of effects are we seeing on um, uh, children's education throughout the country? Do, do we have enough? I mean, obviously there's so much that's preliminary right now, but do we have enough data at this point to make a reliable assessment on what these closures and what uh, you know virtual distance education is is doing to kids from an educational perspective? Well, I know that the headlines right now, really from around the country, are that we are seeing higher rates of Ds and Fs in school. There are headlines from Los Angeles, South Carolina, uh, San Diego, Texas, right. Fairfax, Virginia, um, that are showing that the grades are down. So for a moment, I think to get a sense of how we got here, very quickly, the timeline of the pandemic in the K-12 space, it kind of went like this. When things began to close in March, schools had a choice of whether to do nothing at all and just close their doors or to try to put, pull together some sort of virtual instruction to do something so that they didn't simply end the school year early. 
districts chose, in my from my view, not to follow some of the best practices of existing virtual schools. I think they just kind of pulled together what they could and made their kind of muddled their way through the end of the school year. And then over the summer, I, I don't think that those options improved. And I think as we saw evidence come in that schools were not super spreaders and the effects of the pandemic on young people were not the same as the community at large, I think schools uh, remain closed to in-person learning. And that's how we arrive here today with uh, still a bit of a, I would say, um, wildly uneven delivery of, of online instruction and uh, some pretty low performance from students over the past six to nine months. And, and can you tell uh, what uh, education experts, how, what do they see as, as the effects of, 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 of um, this kind of, of disruption on uh, childhood education? Because I know there's, I believe there's something called a, a summer drain where, um, you know, uh, over the three months of summer, uh, a lot of students will, will lose a lot of the knowledge or the, the skills that they learned over the prior year. There's, there's lots of uh, interest in figuring out how to resolve that. Does, do, do these kinds of uh, uh, disruptions and, and switches to sort of uh, hastily assembled alternative modes of education, will they, are they going to have, a, 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 you think, a, a lasting negative effect on, on kids? Or, or what is that looking like for the long term? Yeah, that's a great question. There's research in recent years that I think calls into question the idea that there really is a brain drain in the summer. I think it has to do with a child situation. I think for families that have a lot of books in the home where the parents are reading to their children, where the parents are paying already for either tutors or some sort of outside enrichment, which some families do you know, now anyway, right, even before the pandemic, I think those students are going to be better off than students that have fewer options available to them. And so I think that when we see uh, news from large urban areas, especially places like L.A., like Chicago, like Detroit, Philadelphia, where thousands, I mean, tens of thousands of kids in some instances simply aren't on the rolls anymore. Right. They just they haven't been accounted for. That should really concern us. I mean, I think what, what we're doing is we're setting it up so that the children that most need some sort of quality experience may not be getting anything at all. They may not have gotten anything since March. And, and how do you, whatever the extent of those losses are, and like you said, I, I, it, it's looking like it could be considerably uh, uh, large, although, of course, we won't know until we can you know, properly assess the, the full scope of uh, what transpired over the last year. But how might schools look towards um, you know, making up those losses. I mean, obviously, uh, in the short term, in a normal year, you might have summer school to try and uh, uh, bridge that gap. But, you know, after after months and months, or maybe a whole year, uh, in which in which this kind of drain has occurred for a lot of students, what what do you do? You have any 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 guesses as to to what the makeup and rectification of that might look like over the next year or so? Well, I think for parents and educators and policymakers, that needs to be a top question for them going into the next, you know, 12 to 18 months. And, you know, education, like just about every policy, we can't guarantee an outcome, but we can provide opportunities. And I think that that is what lawmakers need to be concerned with right now. I think that we need to have ideas like those out of Oklahoma, where in Oklahoma, the governor created a program that provides uh, small grants of money to families in need so that they can buy 
uh, technology services mm -hmm. or hardware to, for their children to keep up. Uh, so it's, they call them digital wallets in Oklahoma. Um, in um, uh, uh, states like Arizona, North Carolina, Florida, they have a number of different private scholarship options as well as education savings accounts where parents can buy multiple products and services at the same time with the money that was otherwise would have been set aside for their child in the education system. It's things like this that allow parents to look outside of a closed school and try to figure out, okay, how else can I provide resources for my student right now? Because there are, I mean, you know, there are a great many options today, right? I mean, this is the 21st century. You can find a tutor via Skype, right? You, right. Can, um, you can do one-on-one -on -one tutoring, you know, in person, if, you know, with all the various protections and things like that. I mean, there are ways that if we give parents the tools, right, they'll be able to, um, to create something exceptional for their child. And we saw that, really, with this whole learning pod idea that, right. that has come up over the past six, six months or so. Yeah, and so that's, you know, certainly it seems like uh, as bad as this is, we probably, uh, you know, the U.S. economy and, and sort of the, the innovation economy and the technology sectors have, have never been better poised to, to sort of make up what's been lost, where in past years if something like this had happened, it, it might have been a truly kind of Herculean effort to, to, to bridge these gaps. Uh, it seems like there's a great deal waiting in the wings to, uh, you know, to, to help students catch up where before they might have just lagged behind indefinitely. And um, in, in, in that regard, what do you see as the, as the potential long-term changes to the education economy in the United States coming from this? Now, obviously, you said there's, there's a, a, you know, a great deal of uh, technological know-how and, and innovators and, and um, you know, non-alternative modes of, of educating children waiting to to make up what's been lost, but in the longer term, I mean, for instance, we're uh, we're seeing what appears to be a, a sharp uptick in homeschooling across the country, um, and that's not just you know remote education at home through a public school, but actual uh, uh, you know individualized homeschooling. That's uh, we've seen it up in um, I think Massachusetts. Uh, there's been a number of other states, uh, Minnesota, I believe, that have posted uh, uh, big big gains in, in parents reporting homeschooling recently, Arizona as well. So do you, do you see those uh, uh, changes as lasting? Do you think we're going to see um, more homeschooling, um, you know, significantly more homeschooling, more uh, maybe charter schools, alternative modes of education? Or, or, or do you anticipate that things will mostly go back to the way they were once everything kind of settles down? No, I think there is a shift. I mean, I think the shift is, has come because when schools close their doors, I, I don't, I don't think that all parents just sort of waited and sat on their hands. I mean, I think parents did form these little learning pods where they got together with neighbors and their children and, um, you know, created an, an, an educational space for them during the day. I mean, parents had to get back to work, right? I mean, they, there, there was sort of a, a, a dual thing going on here where they wanted to continue their child's learning while also make it possible for them to, you know, to get back to work. So I think, I think that's a change. I think parents now when schools close again in the future, say, because of a teacher's union strike, for example, right. I don't, I, I don't, now parents, I don't think have to, have to wait. I think they can say, well, okay, well, I'm going to go over here. You know, I can, I can do this myself, at least for a, you know, for a period. Um, I think that it's easier for parents who have those kinds of options available to them, where they have an education savings account or where they have, you know, the, 
the ability to um, say, all right, I, I know the people in my community, I'm going to put something together uh, here for them, they'll be able to adjust quicker. Charter schools have been such an incredible option, especially in areas where students have been low performing for a long time. And that has drawn the ire of teacher unions. I would love to be able to say that, yes, we're going to see you know, charter schools open up in the areas where we need them. But unfortunately, the unions in places like Chicago and L.A. have caps. I mean, they, they've advocated for and won caps on the growth of charter schools. Right. So um, that should be a real concern to policymakers. I mean, that's, this is, they are hurting the very students who right now need the most help. Um, I think in the places where there is not that same organized political resistance, um, you know, states that have right-to-work laws and things like that, I, I, I do think that we will see more charter schools open up. Uh, I do. I think that, you know, charters have really filled a niche um, uh, with families that felt like their assigned school was not meeting their child's needs and they, you know, they wanted to, uh, wanted to find something else. So, I, you know, I do think... I do think there is potential for the future here. I mean, we, we've got to see that, right? I mean, this is our, our next generation. I mean, these are our children. And uh, so we've, we've got to be hopeful about creating options for them. Yeah, certainly in past times of, uh, of national economic or social difficulty, we, we have seen emergences of um, you know, new paradigms and new ways of doing things that have led to, uh, to you know, greater circumstances and opportunities than before. So there's uh, you know, not, not a whole lot of reason to think this won't be different. These are really difficult times uh, for a whole lot of people, but uh, uh, there's good hope that, uh, that uh, will emerge on the other side a lot stronger, particularly in the areas of education. As, um, uh, like you pointed out, I think, uh, I think the circumstances surrounding this pandemic have exposed a lot of weaknesses in our current edu- educational paradigms that, uh, that we're probably going to look to rectify as we move on. So we'll be keeping a close eye on that and uh, hoping things turn out right sooner better than later. Jonathan, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate you sharing this with us, and um, we hope you keep up the good work. Thank you. Folks, if you get your wallet stolen or your cell phone or your car, we know what it is. It's old-fashioned theft. It's crime. We know it. Criminals now have a new way to steal our most valuable asset, our homes. Older Americans are most vulnerable to these types of thefts, and that's because they more often own their homes outright. An 88-year-old Florida woman recently discovered that scammers forged her signature, created a fake deed to her home, and then took her property. Those who buy a property from a deed theft scammer often become victims as well. What can you do to protect yourself? It's simple. My good friends at Home Title Lock provide the premier detection technology to protect your home and its title. The instant they detect an activity or something suspicious, they mobilize to help shut it down. We won't know a thief took us off our title until it's too late. That's why Title Lock jumps into action right away. The titles to all our homes are easily found online. A criminal or renter, even a family member, can simply forge a signature on a home sale form, then he or she refiles as the new owner, and bam, your home is not in your name, and all of a sudden, debts are being taken out against it. That's why Home Title Lock is my choice. Find out for free when you use my code JUSTNEWS at sign up. You'll get a free comprehensive scan of your home's title and 30 days of legendary home title lock protection free. So go to hometitlelock.com and use the promo code JUSTNEWS. That's the promo code JUSTNEWS at hometitlelock.com. Go there today. All right, folks, that was our show for today. Thank you again for joining us. Please join us tomorrow. I will be back again hosting another episode of John Solomon Reports. We will have some great guests and cover some very important material and keep you informed on what you need to know. Stay well.
Folks, financial experts thought we were in the clear. They were anticipating around six rate cuts by the Fed this year, and then the inflation data came out higher than expected again, just like we've been predicting. Friends, this isn't going away anytime soon. It can't. The U.S. is $34 plus trillion in the hole, and yet we keep printing money, which pushes the prices you pay every day even higher, whether it's at the grocery cart or at the gas store. So you can either bury your head in the sand or you can do something about it. Diversify a portion of your savings into gold with Birch Gold Group. Gold is your hedge against inflation and Birch Gold makes it easy to own. They will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold and you don't pay a penny out of pocket. All you got to do to get started, text Just News to 989898 and get your free info kit on gold. Then talk to a precious metal specialist on how to protect your savings from persistent inflation. The way to do it with gold. All you got to do to get started on that journey with my good friend who I trust more than anyone at Birch Gold Group. Text Just News to 989898 98 98 right now. 